Hi everybody, welcome back. We're gonna get right into self-concept and identity, which is part of the identity and personality chapter. So let's get started. So our awareness of ourselves as distinct from others in our own internal list of answers to the question, who am I, form our self-concept. Uh, many of the ways that we define ourselves fall under the classification of a self-schema, so a self-given label that carries with it a set of qualities. Um, the idea of self-concept goes beyond these self-schemata and it also includes our appraisal of who we used to be and who we will become. So, self-concept and identity are different but closely related. Social scientists define identity as the individual components of our self-concept related to the groups to which we belong. So we have one self-concept, but we can have multiple identities that define who we are and how we should behave within any given context. Um, so there's religious affiliation, sexual orientation, personal relationships, and membership in social groups, which are a few of the identities that come to create our self-concept. Um, so there's many different types of identity. Um, we have gender identity, which is a person's appraisal of him or herself on scales of masculinity and femininity. Um, they androgyny is defined as the state of being simultaneously very masculine and very feminine, where those who achieve low scores on both scales are referred to as undifferentiated. So these concepts were known to be two extremes on a single continuum, but now they must be two separate dimensions because an individual can achieve high scores on scales of both masculinity and femininity. Um, Gender identity is usually well established by age three, but it can morph and change over time. So the theory of gender schema holds that key components of gender identity are transmitted through social, societal, and cultural means. Um, it's not necessarily tied to biological sex or sexual orientation. Um, some cultures can consider a third gender, so like the people of Samoa. And We'll move on to ethnic identity, so the part of one's identity associated with membership in a particular racial or ethnic group. Um, members in a given ethnic group often share a common ancestry, cultural heritage, and language. Um, uh, nationality is based on political borders, so ethnicity is largely an identity into which we are born. But national identity is a result of shared history, media, cuisine, and national symbols, like a flag. It doesn't need to be tied to your ethnicity or to legal citizenship. Um, symbols play an important role in both ethnic and national identity. And there's other types of identity, so age, class, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, and so on. Um, there are several factors that determine which identity will be enacted in particular situations, so our identities are organized according to a hierarchy of salience. So we let the situation dictate which identity holds the most importance for us for at, give, at any given moment. Um, the more salient the identity, the more that we conform to the role, expectations of the identities, and salience is determined by a number of factors, including the amount of work we have invested into the identity, the rewards and gratification associated with identity, and the amount of self-esteem we have associated with it. And our individual self-concept plays a very important role in the way that we evaluate and feel about ourselves. So there's self-discrepancy theory, which maintains that each of us has three selves and that perceived differences between these selves lead to negative feelings. So our self-concept makes up our actual self, the way that we see ourselves as we currently are. Our self, our ideal self, is the person that we would like to be, and our ought self is our representation of the way others think we should be. And the closer these three are to another one another, the higher our self-esteem or self-worth will be. So low self-esteem doesn't mean that you're worthless or you view yourself as worthless, but more critical 
Um, so they take criticism from others poorly and typically believe that people will only accept them if they are successful. And they're more likely to use drugs, to be pessimistic, and to give up when facing frustration from their counterparts with higher self-esteem. So self-efficacy is our belief in our ability to succeed, while self-esteem is a measure of how we feel about ourselves. Self-efficacy can vary by activity. Um, overconfidence can lead us to take on tasks for which we are not ready, leading to frustration, humiliation, or even personal injury. Um, self-efficacy can also be depressed, so someone can develop a perceived lack of control over the outcome of a situation, and this is called learned helplessness, so it's strongly related to clinical depression as well. Locus of control is another core self-evaluation. Um, it refers to the way that we characterize the influences in our lives, so people with an internal locus of control view themselves as controlling their lives and their own fate, whereas those with an external locus of control feel that the events in their lives are caused by luck or outside influences. Um... Next, we have formation of identity. So we are not born with our self-concept and identity in place and fully developed. Um, Sigmund Freud was a pioneer in charting personality and emotional growth. So for Freud, human psychology and human sexuality were linked. Um, the libido or sex drive is present at birth, and he believed that libidinal energy and the drive to reduce libidinal tension were the underlying dynamic forces that accounted for human psychological processes. So Freud hypothesized five distinct stages of psychosexual development. Um, in each stage, children are faced with a conflict between societal demands and the desire to reduce the libidinal tension associated with different erogenous zones of the body. Each stage differs in the manner in which libidinal energy is manifested and the way in which the libidinal drive is met. Fixation occurs when a child is overindulged or overly frustrated during a stage of development, and in response to the anxiety caused by fixation, the child forms a personality pattern based on that particular stage, which persists into adulthood as a functional mental disorder known as neurosis. So the first stage is oral stage, spanning from 0 to 1 years. Um, gratification is obtained primarily through putting objects in the mouth, biting and sucking. Libidinal energy is centered on the mouth, and an orally fixated adult would be expected to exhibit excessive dependency. Next is the anal stage from 1 to 3 years, during which libido is centered on the anus and gratification is gained through the elimination, elimination and retention of waste materials. Toilet training occurs during this stage and fixation would lead to either excessive orderliness, anal retentiveness, or sloppiness in the adult. The phallic stage, known as the edible stage, is the third um, from 3 to 5 years and this stage centers on the edible conflict from male children or the Electra conflict for females. The male child envies his father's intimate relationship with his mother and fears castration at his father's hands. He wishes to eliminate his father and possess his mother, but the child feels guilty. So he deals with his guilty feelings by identifying with his father, establishing a sexual identity, and internalizing moral values. The child has, um, to a large extent, de-eroticized or sublimated his libidinal energy. So this is through collecting objects or focusing on schoolwork. Um, Freud did not elaborate much on the electric conflict, but some more desire women can't have a castration fear, so they are theories to have penis envy, and they are expected to exhibit less stereotypically female behavior and be less morally developed. And once libido is sublimated, the child has entered latency stage, which lasts until puberty is reached. And for Freud, the final stage is the genital stage beginning in puberty and lasting through adulthood, so if prior development has proceeded correctly, the person should enter into healthy heterosexual relationships at this point. Um, if sexual traumas or childhood have not been resolved, then such behaviors as homosexuality, asexuality, or fetishism, fetishism may result. 
Then we have Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development, which is that personality development is driven by the successful resolution of a series of social and emotional conflicts. So the first is that of trust versus mistrust, which occurs during the first year of life. Newborns are helpless and unsure of their environment, and they depend on their caregivers. So the psychosocial conflict is that a newborn faces whether or not to trust their caregivers to reliably provide that support. And if they do, then the newborn will learn trust, which is a social skill. And in other circumstances, the newborn could fail to learn trust. Um, and nevertheless, they'll move on to the next stage and may learn trust later in life. So there's this is an example of three key features of Erickson's theory. So the conflicts that Erickson describes arise because an individual lacks some critical social or emotional skill. Each conflict represents an opportunity to new to learn a new social or emotional skill, which is a mechanism for psychosocial development. Each conflict has either a positive or negative resolution, um, and this outcome does represent a resolution. Uh, oops, I just read over something. Okay, so psychosocial development means not only resolving each conflict, but obtaining a positive resolution. Um, and the third idea is that an individual who fails to obtain a positive resolution at one stage can still advance to later stages and later in life may learn that the skill that they fail to learn during the developmental conflict can still be learned. Second conflict is autonomy versus shame and doubt from one to three years where the child begins to explore their surroundings and develop their interests. The favorable outcome here is feeling able to exert control over the world and exercise choice as well as self-restraint. However, if the child is overly controlled and criticized, the unfavorable outcome is a sense of doubt and a persistent external locus of control. The next conflict is initiative versus guilt from three to six years, in which the child learns basic cause and effect principles in physics and starting and finishing out tasks for a purpose. Favorable outcomes include a sense of purpose, the ability to initiate activities, and the ability to enjoy accomplishments. So if guilt wins, then the child will be so overcome by the fear of punishment that the child may either unduly restrict himself or be overcompensate by showing off. Next, we have industry versus inferiority from 6 to 12 years, where pre-adolescents are becoming aware of themselves. And if resolved favorably, the child will feel comfortable and competent, be able to exercise his or her abilities and intelligence in the world, and be able to affect the world in the way that the child desires. Favorable resolution results in a sense of inadequacy, a sense of inability to act in a competent manner, and low self-esteem. And then from 12 to 20 years, individuals experience identity versus role confusion, so adolescents explore their independence to determine who they are and what their purpose is in society. At this stage, individuals either form a single identity or become unsure about their place in society. The favorable outcome is fidelity, which is the ability to see oneself as unique and integrated with sustained loyalties, and unfavorable outcomes are confusion about one's identity and an amorphous personality that shifts from day to day. From 20 to, 20 to 40 years, intimacy versus isolation, where people focus on creating long-lasting bonds with others. Favorable outcomes are love, the ability to have intimate relationships with others, and the ability to commit oneself to another person and to one's own goals. If this crisis is not favorably resolved, then there will be an avoidance of commitment, alienation, and distancing of oneself from others and one's ideals. Isolated individuals are either withdrawn or capable of only superficial relationship with others. The conflict of middle age, from 40 to 65, is generativity versus stagnation, which where the focus is on advancing present and future society. The successful resolution of this conflict results in an individual capable of being a protective, caring, and contributing member of society. If this crisis is not overcome, one acquires a sense of stagnation and may become self-indulgent, bored, and self-centered with little care for others. 
finally, we have old aid, which is above 65, bringing about the crisis of integrity versus despair, where the focus tends to be reflective and contemplative. So if favorably resolved, we will see wisdom, um, which is detached concern with life itself, with assurance in the meaning of life, dignity, and an acceptance of the fact that one's life has been worthwhile, along with a readiness to face death. If not resolved favorably, then there will be feelings of bitterness about one's life, feeling that life has been worthless, and at the same time, fear over one's own impending death. Next, we have Kohlberg's Theory of Moral Reasoning, which is, oh, not the last one. Um, Kohlberg reasoned that as our cognitive abilities grow, we are able to think about the world in more complex and nuanced ways, and this affects the ways in which we resolve moral dilemmas and perceive the notion of right and wrong. Um, so, these observations were based on responses of subjects to hypothetical moral dilemmas. So, the Heinz Dilemma, where a, man's, a man named Heinz has a wife who is dying of a rare disease, and there is a druggist who invented a drug that could cure the disease, and it causes, costs him 200 to produce, but he sells it for 2000 Heinz can't afford it, so he breaks into the office and steals the medication. Um, and we've got six distinct stages that come from the re uh, results of this. So pre-conventional morality is the first phase, which is typical of pre-adolescent thinking and faces an emphasis on the consequences of the moral choice. Stage one, obedience is concerned with avoiding punishment, while stage two, self-interest is about gaining rewards. Stage two is often called the instrumental relativist stage because it's based on the concepts of reciprocity and sharing. The second phase is conventional morality, which begins to develop in early adolescence when individuals begin to see themselves in terms of their relationships to others. This is based on understanding and accepting social rules. So stage three, conformity places emphasis on the good boy, nice girl orientation in which a person seeks the approval of others. Stage four maintains the social order um, in the highest regard. It's known as law and order. And the third phase is post-conventional morality, which describes a level of reasoning that Colbert claimed not everyone was capable of and is based on social mores, which may conflict with laws. Stage 5, social contract, views moral rules as conventions that are designed to ensure the greater good with reasoning focused on individual rights. And stage 6, universal human ethics, reasons that decisions should be made in consideration of abstract principles. And so these stages are a progression in which each stage is adopted and then abandoned for the next. Um, so we start with stage 1 and we progress to varying degrees as our thinking matures. Some people argue that post-conventional morality describes views that are more prevalent in individualistic societies and is therefore biased against collectivist cultures. And this also um, comes to a point where there was arguing that Kohlberg's research was only performed using male subjects, which may cloud differences in reasoning patterns between men and women. So then we've got Lev Vygotsky, who focused on understanding cognitive development. Um, the engine driving this was the child's internalization of various aspects of culture, so rules, symbols, language, and so on. Um, as the child internalized these various interpersonal and cultural rules, their cognitive activity developed. So there is the zone of proximal development, referring to those skills and abilities that have not fully yet developed, but are in the process. And gaining these skills successfully requires the help of a more knowledgeable other, so like an adult. Um, and something important here is that the our personalities don't form in a vacuum. We are as much of a product of those around us as a product of our own internal growth and development. Um, Albert Bandura, who is the Bobo doll experiment guy, claimed that observational learning contributes greatly to our, our future behaviors. Um, children will observe and encode behaviors and imitate behaviors. And 
As they grow, they become more able to see the identities of others as different from their own. They might experiment, um, such as role-taking, role which is when a child begins to understand the perspectives and roles of others, and they can see how others perceive them and imagine themselves on the outside. Um, so this is theory of mind, which is the ability to sense how another's mind works. So once we develop that, we begin to recognize and react to how others think about us, and we become aware of judgments and react to them, and our reaction to how others perceive us can vary, maintaining, modifying, downplaying, or accentuating different aspects of our personality. And the looking glass self basically represents our understanding of how others see us, which relies on perceiving a reflection of ourselves based on the words and actions of others. And then we have reference groups, which are groups that we use as a standard to evaluate ourselves, so our self-concept depends on whom we are comparing ourselves to. Next, we can move on to... Um, Personality. So personality describes the set of thoughts, feelings, traits, and behaviors that are characterized, um, characteristic of an individual across time and location. So identity describes who we are, while personality describes how we act and react to the world around us. Um, we can categorize theories of personality into four areas. So psychoanalytic or psychodynamic, humanistic or phenomenal phenomenological, phenomenological, type and trait, and behaviorist. So the psychoanalytic or psychodynamic theories of personality contain some of the most widely varying perspectives on behavior. <coughs> so again, we can come back to Sigmund Freud, um, which involved three major entities, the id, ego, and superego. So id is the basic primal inborn urges to survive and reproduce. <coughs> it functions according to the pleasure principle in which the aim is to achieve immediate gratification to relieve any pent-up tension. The primary process is... The id's response to frustration based on the pleasure, pleasure principle obtains satisfaction now, not later. Um, and then mental imagery that fulfills this need for satisfaction is termed wish fulfillment. Because this mental image cannot effectively reduce tension on a permanent basis, the ego comes into play. The ego operates according to the reality principle, taking into account objective reality as it guides or inhibits the activity of the id and the id's pleasure principle. So this guidance is referred to as the secondary process. The aim of the reality principle is to postpone the pleasure principle until satisfaction can actually be obtained, and it must be emphasized that while the ego suspends the work, workings of the primary process, it does so to meet the demands of objective reality. The mutual give and take of the ego and reality promotes the growth of perception, memory, problem solving, thinking, and reality testing. The ego can be understood to be the organizer of the mind. It receives its power from and never can be fully independent of the id. The ego is also responsible for moderating the desires of the superego, so whereas the id's desires are basic needs, those of the superego are refined and focused on the ideal self. The superego is the personality's perfectionist, judging our actions and responding with pride at our accomplishments and guilt at our failures. The superego can be divided into two subsystems, both of which are a reflection of the morals taught to a child by his caregivers. The conscience is a collective of the improper actions for which a child is punished, and the ego ideal consists of those proper actions for which a child is rewarded, so a system of right and wrong substitutes for parental rewards and punishments. Freud also stated that our access to the id, ego, and superego falls into three main categories, thoughts to which we have conscious access, thoughts that we aren't currently aware of, preconscious, and thoughts that have been repressed which are unconscious. Note that the term subconscious isn't really legitimate here. Um, so Freud postulated that our behaviors are also influenced by instincts, so an instinct is an innate psychological representation of a biological need. 
They are the propelling aspects of Freud's dynamic theory of personality and fall into two types, life and death. So life instincts, which are referred to as heroes, promote an individual's quest for survival through thirst, hunger, and sexual needs. Death, which are referred to as thanatos instincts, represent an unconscious wish for death and destruction. The ego's recourse for relieving anxiety caused by the clash of the id and the superego is through defense mechanisms, which have two common characteristics. They deny, falsify, or re distort reality first, and then they operate unconsciously second. There are eight main defense mechanisms that I'll go over quickly. Repression, suppression, regression, reaction, formation, projection, rationalization, displacement, and sublimation. So, repression is the ego's way of forcing undesired thoughts and urges to the unconscious and underlies many of the other defense mechanisms, the aim of which is to disguise threatening impulses that may find their way back from the unconscious. Um, while it's mostly an unconscious forgetting, suppression is a more deliberate conscious form of forgetting. Regression is reversion to an earlier developmental state faced with stress. Older children may return to earlier behaviors. Reaction formation occurs when an ex individual suppresses urges by unconsciously converting these urges into their exact opposites. Protection is the defense mechanism by which individuals attribute their undesired feelings to others. Tests that make use of projection to gain insight into a client's mind are common in psychoanalytic therapy, so like the Rorschach and Flock test, which relies on the assumption that the client projects his or her unconscious feelings onto the shape. Similarly, the thematic apperception test consists of a series of pictures that are presented to the client who is asked to make up a story about each one. The story will illustrate the client's own unconscious thoughts and feelings. Rationalization is the justification of behaviors in a manner that is acceptable to the self and society. Displacement describes the transference of an undesired urge from one person or object to another. And sublimation is the transformation of an unacceptable urge into socially acceptable behaviors. So pent-up sexual urges may be sublimated into a drive for business success or artistic creativity. And then, don't think I will be able to get through the other psychoanalysts. So I think I'll stop here and we'll pick up finishing off the psychoanalysts and then get into the humanistic perspective and personality types and traits and finish off with the content summary.